Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Exodus. Enjoy the message. We're in uh, chapter 6 tonight of our series in the book of Exodus, and uh, I just want to remind you of how chapter 5 ended. Chapter 5 ends with this kind of really strange picture of Moses being really disappointed, and so he proverbially sits God down and says, now God, listen here. That doesn't often happen, but Moses is frustrated. Moses is accusing God because God showed up. God revealed himself to Moses. God gave him signs and wonders, and God said, go back to Egypt. Remember, Moses is hiding away in Midian, and so eventually he goes. He's had all this revelation, and he goes to Pharaoh, and he goes before Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh, I've got word from the Lord for you. Let my people go, and it's nothing but disappointment. And so Moses is like, God, you haven't delivered. You said you would deliver, and you haven't delivered like you said. And, uh, and things go from bad to worse because Pharaoh's infuriated, and so he piles on more work, and he makes it harder for the people of God. And now as we open chapter 6, it's almost like the roles have reversed, and we have this interplay throughout chapter 6. We're going to see God speaking and Moses speaking, and then it's going to go backwards and forwards. And right in the beginning... It's as if when Moses said to God, now God, sit down and listen to me. God stands up and says, no, you sit down and you listen to me. So let's read from verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. And uh, we're going to put fast forward on a couple of verses, and I'll tell you why shortly. Here we go. But, verse 1, but the Lord said to Moses, now it's his turn. Now you sit down, Moses, and you listen. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they have lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Just take note of God's response. God says at first, I have seen, I have heard, and I have remembered. It's almost like although he's sitting Moses down, God wants to kind of come down to his level because of course God has seen. And of course, God has heard. It's, he's never not seen, and he's never not heard, and, it's, and he's never forgotten, right? He's, he's kind of going, I, I remembered, but I never forgot. And so he almost condescends. He comes down to our level. Verse 6, he goes on, and he says, Say, therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And they were real burdens. And I will deliver you. From slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has sought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Kami. These are the clans of Reuben. And they go on. Verse 15, the sons of Simeon. And they go on. Verse 16, these are the names of the sons of Levi. What we're reading here is an ancient Israeli phone book. What is this doing here? And we go on. I mean, verse 16, verse 17, the sons of Gershon, etc., etc., all the way down to verse 25. You can read that in your own time if you like. If you want to practice your English literature, it's a good place to start. Verse 25, Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. Now, this whole genealogy is bracketed in verse 14 and at the end of verse 25 with the same statements. In verse 14, we read, these are the heads of the fathers of their houses. At the end of verse 25, we read, these are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. And so we've got this genealogy shoved right into the middle of this exciting story. And we'll talk about that shortly. But let's get back into verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said. In other words, this is their background. This is their family tree. And he said to them, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt this Moses and this Aaron. Verse 28, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, notice the backwards and forwards, eh? Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? He says it twice. Well, we pick up the story, and Moses is despondent. Moses is really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Moses has been wrung out and left to dry. Moses has been rejected by his own people. His own nation have rejected him. Moses has been ridiculed and rejected by Pharaoh. In verse 9, Moses is really despondent. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, and they didn't listen to him. They were a broken people, and so they were like, Moses, we won't have you. But on top of his despondency, he's also doubting. He's uncertain that he's the right man for the job. He's pretty much convinced that he's disqualified from this role. And, and that his moment to be the great deliverer has actually passed from him. Look at verse 12. He, he literally says to 
to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? If, if my own people won't listen to me, how on earth will Pharaoh not listen to me? And then he says, For I am of uncircumcised lips. And he says it twice in verse 30. He says almost the exact same thing. There's two things that we need to note here in regards to this response of him confessing that he's of a people of uncircumcised lips. The first thing is that it's a clear reference to his inability to speak eloquently. We all know from the narrative that Moses needed someone to speak on his behalf. And God was gracious and kind, and he gave him his elder brother, Aaron, to come alongside him, to be the mouthpiece, to be the prophet on behalf of the deliverer. And so it's a confession. It's a confession of his stutter. It's a confession of his inability to communicate clearly. And he says, I am unable to do that. My lips are not eloquent. But there is more to it, isn't there? I mean, why not just say, I can't speak well, or I have a stutter or a stammer? He, he, he uses this covenant language. He says, I am of uncircumcised lips. What's that all about? And most commentators agree that he really is feeling like he's excluded from the promises of God. That he's blown it so badly that he's now identifying with the uncircumcised. Moses, who had this issue earlier on, remember, where God threatened to kill him around this issue of circumcision because he failed to administer it to his children, he's confessing, I think, this. He's saying, Lord, my body may be circumcised, but my heart is not. I am a sinner. I am unworthy to be what you've called me to be. And so in a sense, we could understand these doubts. I think many of us go through these seasons of doubts. And last week, we sang that beautiful song during communion, Doubting Our Doubts. And it's almost like Moses is saying to God, it's been three strikes and I'm out. I spoke to the Israelites. I spoke to the, the, the foremen and the managers of the people of the Israelites. And I spoke to Pharaoh and all three have rejected me. So I'm out. But in the midst of his doubts and in the midst of his despondency, chapter 6 is really all about his redeployment. God is going to redeploy Moses. At his lowest, what we see in chapter 6 is that God's mind has not changed. God is not fickle. God was not like, okay, Moses, I wasn't quite sure that you were going to drop me so badly and that you were going to be so uneloquent before Pharaoh. No, God knew all of this. God knew that it was going to play out like this. God has a plan in this. And so God's mind has not changed. And so he recommissions Moses with the same ultimatum to Pharaoh. Let's have a look at the ultimatum, verses 10 and 11. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt, to let these people go. Verse 13, but the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge. So a command. Verses 28 and 29, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses. Listen, there's no doubting what the Lord is saying here, right? He is redeploying him on the same mission. Now you might be sitting there going, well, What's so, what's so fantastic about this redeployment? I mean, it's kind of like he's had this moment already. God has said all this stuff previously. He's now saying it again. 
And when we read the text, what we actually find is in verses 2 through 8, God almost ramps it up a level. And in fact, there's a lovely hint in verses 2 and 3 that what God is about to do with Moses is he's about to set a new trajectory and a new sense of revelation for Moses that no one else has ever seen or heard of before. And so God almost draws him to this point, and then he gives him a quick history, 101 lesson. And he explains to Moses, he says, listen, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when I appeared to them, I made them promises. I appeared to them as God Almighty, and I made promises to them. Look at this. Let's, let's look at the passage together. It's really fascinating. Verse 2 and 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Look, here it is. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, the incorrect interpretation of that is that they had no idea who God was. That's not what he's saying. The contrast, because there's clearly a contrast here. They had a certain vision and picture of God. Now Moses, you are going to get an added aspect. It's not like there's going to be a different God that you're dealing with. No, it's almost like you're going to have the same God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now going to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. And here's why. Because God is about to act. And what God is doing here is that he's about to blow Moses' mind in terms of his revelation, in terms of his self-revelation. Because what God is going to do here for Moses, is he's, he's identifying himself as not, the, not only the God who makes promises, but the God who actually acts. The God who promises comes true. The God who makes promises fulfills his promises. And so it's, it's couched in language of self-revelation. Now, the interesting thing about this is that when God comes to Moses here, he wants to reassure him, right? Because he's despondent and he's doubting and he's disappointed and, and he's really just not doing well. And once again, we note that when God comes to us and we're not in a good space, he doesn't give us a pep talk. And he doesn't say, hey, cheer up, old pal. You're actually so awesome. He doesn't say to Moses, Moses, you're amazing. Moses, you're a wonderful being. Moses, you are. And he doesn't do that, right? What does he do? God comes to Moses and he talks about himself. God talks about himself. And what we learn straight off the bat is that if it were a human being, if it was Aaron coming to Moses and Aaron said to Moses, hey, Moses, you know how awesome I am? Moses would be like, shut up, brother. Like, that means nothing to me. Get out of my room. And it's, it's funny because, you know, we, 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 we kind of heard about things like this. You know, if a guy takes a girl on a date, maybe it's the first date, and, and just a heads up, girls, if this happens, Hit the road, right? So if, if a guy takes you out on the date and all he ever talks about is himself, right? Hit the road, eh? If all he ever talks about is him and his accomplishments and his dreams and his life and how strong he is, 
run. And so you, 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 could, you could take that a principle and you could apply it here, but we can't because this is God. He's not a human being. This is God Almighty. And what we learn firstly here is this, that our deepest insecurities and our deepest fears and doubts can never, ever be banished by a knowledge of who we are. We can only rid ourselves of insecurity and fears and doubts by a fresh knowledge of who God is. Not about you. It's not about finding a better you. It's not about becoming more you, becoming more human, becoming more true, becoming more authentic, discovering the better you. That's rubbish. It's going to reinforce your insecurities, and it's going to deepen your fears, and it's going to double your doubts. And so when God comes to Moses, he doesn't try and pop him up or prep him up or send him Aaron. God says, here I am. And he reveals himself to him, and he shows himself to him, and he reveals his glory, and he says, see. See me for who I am. So let's just dig a little bit deeper here because I think this is just such a powerful moment. What is God actually saying to Moses? And it's really interesting because he says, I revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, which in the Hebrew can be translated as El Shaddai. You might have heard of those Hebrew phrase before. El Shaddai meaning the powerful one or the almighty one. But the word Shaddai has a really interesting literal translation, which can mean breast or chest, which has two connotations. One is think Hulk, okay? Not, not a small chest, but a muscly, huge chest when he's green, eh? not, not Bruce Banner when he's, when he's angry. Um, and, and the picture here is God who is strong. But at the same time, it's God who nourishes, a God who cares, a God who says, come and just put your head here and rest a while. This God made promises because Abraham wasn't sure that, that he was called and Abraham was like a deceiver and Abraham wasn't convinced he was going to have kids and Abraham needed to come and rest in God's promises and Jacob was also a deceiver and Jacob needed to rest in God's promises and, and so the story goes on. They all needed to rest in God's promises and so God says, I revealed myself to them as a promising God. But what they lacked was they never actually saw the end. They never really saw the end goal, that they would have a land and that they would be his people. They, got, they caught glimpses of the promise, but even the book of Hebrews tells us they were looking forward to the promise, but they never really entered it. But right here, right now, God says to Moses, I'm not only God Almighty, but I am the Lord. And the word in the Hebrew there is I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, I am sovereign. And the impulse here, the tone is I'm about to act. So I'm not only a God of promise, I'm a God of action. Two, two commentaries, and I just found these comments helpful. John Curid says this, the promise of a coming exodus 
And it wouldn't have been clear for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Exodus, but it was a promise of land, that they would have a land, and now they're in captivity. So how are we going to get this land? The promise of a coming Exodus and redemption from slavery was not fulfilled during the time of the patriarchs, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but belonged to a distant future. And then Alec Motya says, God sent Moses to Egypt to declare a nature, not a name. In other words, what, what Motya is saying here is incredibly powerful. Because the name, although Pharaoh said, I don't know that name, the name they knew. And even the Israelites knew God Almighty, but they had lost hope that he would ever act. Because it had been so long. And God had delayed for so long. But God is redeploying Moses. And he's saying, when you go to Pharaoh, go and tell Pharaoh that this God is a God of promise, but he's also a God of action. So you better beware. He's not just going to Pharaoh and saying, hey, God made a promise and let's hope he comes to pass. Let's hope he actually fulfills it. No, no. He goes to Pharaoh again and he says, the God that we serve is a God of promise and a God of action. So beware. And then, in the middle of this beautiful narrative, we got this genealogy. And when I first read this, I'm like, I think the guys that kind of put the Bible together might have missed this part. And then it should have been like right in the beginning. It's, it's, almost like the, it's almost like you're watching a TV show. Like we interrupt this special pro, show to bring you a word from our sponsors. It's like, what is going on here? Now suddenly, in the midst of this wonderful narrative of Moses doubting and being redeployed, and, and then it's all about like, okay, this is the family tree. And it's dead boring to read. It's like, what is this bit doing here? Until we realize that the way that the chapter is written, the contrast between God said, Moses said, God said, Moses said, God said, Moses said, I am the Lord. I am of uncircumcised lips. I am the Lord. I am of uncircumcised lips. And then the genealogy. Well, of course, it's a contrast. This is who Moses and Aaron are. And so it's almost like, and in the left corner, we have Moses and Aaron. And in the other corner, we have King Pharaoh. And everyone at a natural level is going, well, these guys are going to get destroyed. It's like Moses and Aaron, and this is their pedigree. And you've got King Pharaoh. In the other corner, we have King Pharaoh. This is an unfair fight. How can you send Moses, who needs someone to help him and hold his hand, to go before King Pharaoh? This is an unfair fight. Until we realize that actually, in their corner, is God Almighty. The king over all kings. And what we see here is a contrast between the weakness of their pedigree and the beauty and the glory of God's eternal nature. Because in the narrative of that genealogy, not only do we see that God has been planning this all along, God has been ordaining it and God's been taking care of it over generations, over generations, over generations. But also in the, in the genealogy, we notice that there are a couple of real uh, embarrassing points. 
for example, and I just want to point them out, and really, I didn't know this until I studied the passage and lent heavily on commentary, but in verse 15, we are told that Shaul was the son of a Canaanite woman. In other words, he was born to a marriage that should never have happened because you got a Hebrew marrying a Canaanite, and that was forbidden. They were not supposed to marry pagans. And then further on in verse 20, the text tells us that Amran is married to his paternal aunt. And so there's an incestuous reality here. And that too was forbidden under Mosaic law. So if you're going to write a genealogy and you're going to come up against the king of Pharaoh and you're going to put your best foot forward, I would suggest you leave those two verses out and you go, hey, this is our pedigree. But Moses doesn't. He includes it. And he's like, listen, here we are, warts and all. What's the point? The point is we're we're done before the bell even rings unless we have God in our corner. Unless God is fighting for us. Unless God is with us. And if God is with us, then who can stand against us? Amen? It's actually a wonderful contrast. And so they go. Now they're prepared to get into the ring. They're actually prepared to get into the fight. And it's going to be a bit of a dogfight, really. As we go into the next chapter, we're going to see the first plague begin in chapter 7. And we're going to go through the plagues. We're going to do them in bigger chunks, all right? But as we get into it, it's going to be a dogfight between these two guys and this guy. And these two things go on for a while until God himself has had enough. And we're going to see the patience and the kindness of God. And we're going to see the severity and the wrath of God. Because he's not only a God of promise, he's a God who acts.